This is an overrated Christmas stocking filler from Vince, Neil and Jeremy. Enjoy. It became a tradition that when we reached the Beatles song section of each episode of the Overrated Podcast, that I would read aloud from the relevant passage from Revolution in the Head, uh, the Beatles music and the 60s by the brilliant Ian MacDonald, a sort of seminal guide to the Beatles songs. Um, And I had no idea why I started doing that. And I had no idea that people really quite liked it and missed it when I stopped doing it, when I mislaid my copy of the book somewhere in my dusty house of books. So I've um, been gifted a new copy by Santa Jeremy. Um, And as uh, a special Christmas treat, I thought I would read aloud all the missing entries. Magical Mystery Tour, Lennon and McCartney. Paul McCartney, vocal, piano, bass. John Lennon, harmony vocal, acoustic, rhythm, guitar. George Harrison, harmony vocal, lead guitar. Ringo Starr, drums, tambourine. Mal Evans and Neil Aspinall on cowbell, maracas and tambourine. David Mason, Elgar Howarth, Roy Copestake and John Wilbraham on trumpets. Recorded 25th to the 27th of April, 3rd of May, 1967, Abbey Road, Studio 3, producer George Martin, engineer Jeff Emmerich. UK release 8th of December, 1967, the EP Magical Mystery Tour. Rather than rush to fill a three-month album schedule as had been necessary while touring, the Beatles now settled into a regime of continuous low-intensity recording. This suited their more relaxed lifestyle, but it had a workaday quality about it, an intrinsic lack of tension which was bound to colour the resulting material. Since they paid no studio fees, they needed only to find free time in the Abbey Road schedules and turn up, whether or not they had anything ready to record. Consequently, many of the hours they now spent in Studio 2 were occupied not with recording or even rehearsing, but with writing songs. In practice, this meant that the Beatle with the main idea had to worry it into shape with the half-attentive help of the others, a tedious procedure for anyone not immediately involved, such as Starr and the studio staff. At the same time, the group's drug intake had begun to loosen their judgment, lowering their standards of self-criticism. These effects colluded with the Beatles' ambivalent attitude to their own talent to induce an uncharacteristic carelessness in their work. Press statements of the period show them casually acknowledging the fact that they were the world's best pop group while maintaining that all that they did was put in the hours and that anyone could achieve the same if they tried hard enough. This reflective self-deprecation was partly a stock-in-trade of northern English culture, with its bias to the ordinary and instinctive dislike of anything fancy or affected. McCartney's family background made him a sucker for such populist anti-elitism, and his various attempts to find projects to keep the Beatles going during the last three years were invariably marked by it. 
By contrast, Lennon McCartney, uh, sorry, Lennon and Harrison had fled Liverpool precisely to escape the stultifying effects of their inverted snobbery. Yet such was its hold on them that they both quickly found substitutes for it. Harrison in Indian religion, with its distrust of worldliness and stress on the simple things in life. Lennon, with his compulsion to debunk culture and his sardonic delight in the ridiculous and the grotesque. Harrison, who had been comparatively inactive during the Sergeant Pepper sessions, was the earliest of the group to become disenchanted with the Beatles and the first to sanction a consciously sloven pace of work. Despite this, he kept his reservations quiet. The less guarded Lennon, on the other hand, was capable of outspoken dismissals of the group's worth and work, veering easily from boastful claims that they were as good as Beethoven to cynical rejections of the Beatles as talentless con artists. With his careerist commitment to the group, the extrovert McCartney sensed this malaise setting in as soon as they had given up touring, and it was his pestering that initiated and maintained the impetus behind Sergeant Pepper, without which they might well have broken up around the end of 1966. The same danger, in his anxious judgment, reasserted itself towards the end of the Pepper sessions, and he began looking for a new project to keep us together, keep us going, give us something to do. Joining Jane Asher on her theatre tour of America in 1967, he was impressed by the dedication of the West Coast hippies compared with their more flippant British cousins, and was particularly struck by Ken Kesey's LSD apostles, the Merry Pranksters, and their day-glow painted touring coach. A cinema fan and a maker of underground home movies, McCartney saw the motif of a psychedelic roadshow as the basis for a film, which he accordingly roughed out on a sheet of paper while flying back to Britain. Mixing for Sergeant Pepper was still going on when he arrived, and it might have been wiser to let everyone have a couple of months rest before pushing on with a new project. But Brian Epstein liked the idea, and McCartney, as ever, was impatient to start. Thus, a mere four days after Sergeant Pepper was put to bed, the jaded Beatles were back in Abbey Road, taping the title track for Magical Mystery Tour. In an apparent attempt to keep things spontaneous, McCartney arrived at the studio with only three chords and the opening line of the lyric. Evolving the music and rehearsing it as the session progressed, he kept the others' attention by getting them to shout out phrases and bash the percussion instruments to hand. Despite this, they soon lost interest and he had to assume the role of bandmaster, drilling them through a backing track and asking George Martin for traffic sound effects and a trumpet section. Two further days of erratically inspired labour on the track was followed by a chaotic section, a session for trumpet overdubs, in which McCartney again turned up with only vague ideas, leaving Elgar Howarth to dash off the score. While energetic, the result is manufactured, its thin invention undisguised by a distorted production tricked out with unconvincing time and tempo changes. The main idea, roll up, etc., is shop-worn, 
rather contrasting section, the magical mystery tour is coming, etc., does little more than transpose the verse session uh, sequence of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. The extent of the other's enthusiasm for magical mystery tour is clear from the fact that no further work was done on the soundtrack for another four months. Yet, while Lennon and Harrison postponed thinking about the project for as long as they could, they enjoyed the actual filming and were as unprepared as McCartney for the critical roasting the programme suffered when it was transmitted by the BBC on 26th of December. The general view was that the Beatles had finally overreached themselves and perpetrated their first career howler. Only the Guardian's Keith Dewhurst took a deeper look, an inspired, freewheeling achievement, a deliberate parody of mass communication, a fantasy morality play about the grossness and warmth and stupidity of the Beatles' audience. Paradoxically, far from a case of self-indulgent hubris, such as become a standard ingredient in pop-rock conceptual disasters since 1968, the failure of Magical Mystery Tour was a product of the group's false modesty, regarding themselves both as the best in their field and, so not as to be big-headed about it, nothing special, they wandered drug-dozy into the medium of film, assuming that anyone with a few ideas could turn out something watchable. With his usual sublime confidence, McCartney had the cheek to show some of his home movies to Michelangelo Antonioni while he was shooting Blow Up in London in 1966. As it happens, the group's fans enjoyed Magical Mystery Tour and the film and record package did healthy business in America, recouping its £40,000 outlay from the advance orders for the soundtrack weeks before it was screened. Nor was the programme quite as ineptly haphazard as often claimed, as a prototype of both the road movie, uh, road movie genre inaugurated two years later by Easy Rider and of the brief 80s vogue for long-form videos, it even has a modest place in film history. In terms of the Beatles' career, Magical Mystery Tour marks the breakdown of the cross-generational consensus on them, established in 1964 by A Hard Day's Night. Notwithstanding McCartney's eagerness to please, this is where parents began to part company with their sons and daughters over the group, rightly suspecting a drug-induced pretension setting in. At the same time, the Beatles remained their debunking selves and the subversive agenda of Magical Mystery Tour, sending up consumerism, showbiz and the clichés of the media, was very much their version of the counterculture's view of mainstream society. While in America the hippies openly jeered the middle-aged, middle-class, middle-brow customs of the parental generation, Magical Mystery Tour did the same for Britain in a slyer, less confrontational way. The Beatles' much-criticised aimlessness in this project was partly satirical, gently embarrassing the great British public on its most bloated day of the year. At the very least, the film marked an advance in content, over the disarmingly boyish A Hard Day's Night and genuinely directionless help. (laughs) 